0: So, for what will be the third time is a charm. Yeah, Mike Ernest, I appreciate your time. We're starting from the beginning, we're just going straight over. And uh, okay. And now oh, I yeah, love yeah, that. Yeah. I love your surprise because I'm going to keep that in there. Okay. Just to show <laughs> everyone how patient of a man you really can be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've had technical errors after technical errors, and Sorry. here I am sitting in front of potentially the next judge of Tuscarawas <laughs> County. <laughs> oh, not a good uh, resume. But I, I appreciate you taking not so wrong. much time and being patient with me. Let's get to, let's get to know who you are. I mean. Okay. Uh, for a lot, and before I even started working in the news, I wasn't aware of who our assistant or our county prosecutor was or is. So, for those that were like me, I mean, introduce yourself. How would you do that?
1: Okay. Um, uh, my name is Mike Ernest, and since uh, for the last, really for the last 23 years, I have served as a prosecutor in some capacity here in Tuscarawas County. I started out as a city prosecutor in New Philadelphia. And I did that for about three years. And I was then given the opportunity to go to the Tuscarawas County Prosecutor's Office. And I started out there as a juvenile prosecutor. And I did that um, along with adult cases um, on a part-time basis till about 2009. And then in 2009, We had a change in our county in the prosecutor's office, and the elected official became Ryan Steyer, who is still our county prosecutor's office. And I was fortunate uh, to not only to stay on with Ryan, but doubly fortunate in that he um, promoted me to be his chief assistant. And since that time, I've been given the opportunity to oversee the criminal caseload that comes into our office.
0: And so that's to say that, That would be the highest caseload that's coming into your office, being the chief assistant prosecutor.
1: What that would mean is uh, oversee cases as they come in, um, see that they are allocated to the other assistants in the office. I generally take on the more significant, uh, if it's a homicide, uh, more... um, higher level uh, felonies on some occasions, not all. We have other very good assistants in our office that also handle those types of cases. The one area that I have been specifically designated to, though, is in the drug-related cases in our office. And then one might argue that What case isn't drug-related to some extent in a prosecutor's office because of the number of people who abuse drugs and then maybe commit a crime or commit crimes in order to get drugs? But we have some cases that are specifically drug-driven cases, such as a possession case or a trafficking or other related cases that I have been handling since uh, really before Ryan came on board, but since Ryan came on, uh, doing those exclusively.
0: And sitting in on some of these court cases, of course, those are going to be those bigger ones that I would go to. This is a stressful job, and this is a job that can at times go some ugly places. I mean, how does somebody get drawn to this?
1: Um, You know, that is a good question and one that I've had before. I think there are a number of factors that draw you to them. And part of it is. There are clearly victims uh, that have suffered greatly as a result of it. I don't think that anyone would say they were drawn to it for those types of reasons, other than uh, there, there certainly are cases in which it is very satisfying to know that someone has been held accountable who has victimized a person. But one of the sad aspects of being in the prosecutor's office is that um, unlike other areas of the law where maybe a win's a win, uh, sometimes, uh, even getting a conviction in a prosecutor's office, you've got to step back and remember, um, you know, there could be, you know, there's somebody who may not be the same as a result of it. There's going to be some injury that, you know, after the case is over, they're still going to have, you know, they're still going to be suffering from. So, uh, you always got to keep that in mind, but, Thankfully, um, many cases uh, we have uh, are not of that level where there is this um, immeasurable harm that happens to the person. Um, They're often, I think, a a challenging case. Uh, They can have a lot of constitutional uh, issues that need to be addressed that I find interesting. Um, If you like trial work, it is the place to go. It's probably the place to go if you want to be in the courtroom. And I've always enjoyed being in the courtroom. So um, I guess it's the job for me.
0: Yes. Seems like it. I mean, for all those years doing this, it doesn't mean that your sole focus is on directly the prosecutor's office. Uh, You are several people at once, I think. (laughs) I've
1: been fortunate in that I have been able to uh, be involved with Other areas as well, Uh, up until 2009, I had worked uh, quite regularly in a private law firm in New Philadelphia, uh, Johnson Urban Range, in which we had covered a general area of uh, civil matters for people. Uh, I've also been fortunate in that I've been able to stay in the classroom as well. I've been an instructor at Kent Tusk since 2005. And I think I just like the variety of those those different occupations.
0: So let's just start you know, picking out from that tree you just laid in front of us, a professor at Kent State Tusk. Now, that's something that is new information to me.
1: I've um, I've been there for a while. I've been there <laughs> since 2005. Apparently, you weren't at Kent Tusk. But, or, um, it's very limited as to what I do teach there. I'm in the Justice Studies program, and I have taught— um, criminal law, criminal procedure and evidence, court functions, and one of my favorites, uh, crime justice and popular culture, <laughs> and which does seem really unique to me. It has been a great opportunity. I have a real fondness for the Kent Tusk campus, and uh, I think it's been a good match.
0: So, were you a, were you the Quaker cinema, cinema owner before you became the teacher of crime justice and pop culture, or after? I I was. Which inspired which? I, yeah, I was the.
1: <laughs> movie theater owner before uh, I was given the opportunity to teach the class but I think the class probably existed before all of that this yeah. is not something that I came up with it's a you could, you could take the same course at uh, Kent State although I guessing the instructor is probably not a lawyer and a movie theater owner uh, at Kent but um, could be uh, <laughs> that's
0: a that's a trifecta that I don't think you're gonna meet
1: I don't think so but yeah you know, <laughs> don't know for sure Um sure the movie theater is really parallels my career as a lawyer. Um, It started when I was just at the tail end of college. It kind of percolates through my law school years and just culminates in just the perfect timing right about the time when I graduated from law school, starting out as a lawyer, and I start working for um, Mike Johnson at that time who owned the movie theater at that time, uh, did not have four children at that time, Yeah, had a lot more free time <laughs> and as a hobby, uh, opened up the Quaker and it blossomed into a, a business from there.
0: Yeah. I mean that for me, uh, you've owned that essentially as long as I can remember.
1: It's, it, it will be, um, 23 years uh coming up our anniversary
0: which uh, is crazy to me because maybe i'm a kid that just doesn't hadn't put my nose into any of the county's business but i didn't know that either (laughs) (laughs) i don't just to me uh, maybe that's my perspective but it seems kind of humble to not to not know the guy that does all of these things
1: (laughs) well it's uh you know you Just didn't, I guess, put it all together, Brian, but uh, now you know.
0: So how do you get to own a movie theater? I mean, it seems like every profession that you're in would take its own path and its own whole story of how you ended up there. They're very specific.
1: I'm fortunate in that the movie theater comes about um, because my partner, who has since passed away, was out of a job in the mid-'90s, we worked together at a movie theater in Kent, Ohio, and he was very passionate about movie theaters. I was probably never did. I think that I would own a movie theater or work even at a movie theater. And it just happened to be that I did. And I was definitely more interested in the movies and he was more interested in the buildings and projection work. That was his thing. yeah, And, Um, He knew that there was uh, a building, an opportunity in Tuscarawas County, and in what would have been 1996, we put it together as far as the the business, and we were able to open in 1997, and it was really the perfect partnership because um, one of us could not have done it alone. Yeah. Um, I didn't have the movie smarts to 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 run a projector. John knew everything about projectors, mm-hmm. and little did we know that the need for a lawyer would be critical in the <laughs> opening of the Quaker Cinema. Really, it did. From the from um, it's too long of a story to, to, to go into. Sure. This is probably been an entire podcast of, it of itself. Is there are cliff notes um, the story in order really to um un- to, to uh to get us open yeah. um often lawyers are needed this time it was imperative it, okay. we had to have a lawyer <laughs> and it was also necessary uh even after we opened it was the truly the perfect partnership that I had with john
0: but it's it, this is strange that i'm hearing about a class that seems tailored to you in the situations that you run into when you're opening are tailored to you i mean that's just that's insane but of of course there's put uh, there's a lot of hard work being put in behind that uh you open up the quaker what i to me that's like a staple i've known about that forever my entire life literally Mm -hmm. and so what's your life become whenever you're the guy that owns the quaker or the guy that co-owns the quaker i mean is that is did things change for you around here
1: well, I don't know about changing. It just seems like it's just always been the uh, the norm to me, but it uh, it just fit in yeah. my life at that time. As I mentioned, I didn't have children at the time, but it was very shortly uh, after. I, my first child was born in 1998, the Quakers, uh, less than a year old when my son Will was born. And... It just it was it was it just was like almost like a part of our family because, yeah. um, there was no better um, means of entertaining them than <laughs> taking them to the movie. They had their run of the popcorn and drinks and uh, watched every probably every single family film from 1998 <laughs> to the present. So it it just fit our family like a glove.
0: And your resume goes deeper. Is, does having the Quaker Begin or did you already have this love for community? Because there's a lot of areas that you're making a lot of progress on, like the the I don't know. living here side. I mean, do you, do you have a timeline for that, or have you always just been a community guy?
1: Well, you know, that would probably be the first time I really had the opportunity to be, I guess, invested in the community. I, I wouldn't say that I was that way as a as a high school student at, at, at New Philly so much, yeah. But um, I've heard that said, you know, a few times, and I kind of makes you think about it a little bit more. And I would say it probably would go back to, um, I had grandparents that were very much invested in the local community, would be quick to want to show off uh, aspects of the community. And um, I think it probably is, you know, traceable back to them. But it really does kick off probably gives me the, the platform which to do that with the Quaker.
0: And then just to kind of open that discussion up because we talked about now assistant prosecution, we talked about the uh, the Quaker, your time at Kent Tusk that continues. You're also the uh, Tuscarora Park Foundation. That's that's a newer foundation that you were the president of.
1: <laughs> yes, um, the, the Tuscarora Park Foundation is really born out of my involvement with the New Philadelphia Parks and Recreation Board. Um, I have served on that board, I'm going to say 10 years, mm-hmm. approximately. I'm not really sure when it when it began. And um, that is a labor of love. I mean, I, I absolutely, you don't want to see challenges come up, but it's one of those organizations that if it comes up, it is something to tackle. You know, sure. it is something that, that brings, makes it interesting. What's a and, challenge? Oh, the clearly the biggest challenge since I have been on the board has been the development of the Southside Community Park, without a doubt. Oh, that's a um, buzzword right now, too. Yes, the Southside Community Park was probably the reason, one of the main reasons I was even um, asked to be on the board when there was an opening, as I think it was known that I was one of the people that was uh, using the park in its early stages, and... Um, Once asked to be on it, I easily said, yes, I'd love to help out. Uh, Little did I know, though, that it would uh, take a number of years to get to the point in which we were making progress on the South Side, and um, thankfully um, it is taking off. If anyone, uh, uh, doubts me, I would say drive down old town Valley road in new Philadelphia. And when you get to the corporation limit, you're going to see significant changes taking place.
0: Yeah. Explain this park to me. I mean, we got Tuscarora park. People say, why do we need another uh, miniature train?
1: Well, because the Southside community park is something really entirely different than what New Philadelphia has already. We have a beautiful park. We have maybe the greatest, uh, probably the greatest municipal park in Tuscora Park. But um, the the city of New Philadelphia already owned uh, a number of, of acres of unused property on the south side of New Philadelphia when I came onto the board. And there was always talk of, uh, one time of it being utilized for athletic purposes and wisely. We, uh, you know, t- taking uh, the, the advice from our, our president at that time uh, was Don Kemp and our, our mayor at that time, Joel Day, uh, said, let's get, let's, you know, don't, don't just dive into it. We will do some focus groups, find out what the community wants. How can we best use this property? And we did that. And we found that there were interests outside of athletic facilities, that people wanted a place to walk. They wanted um, a dog park. Uh, they wanted really more of just a natural environment along with athletic fields. But really, the, the, the ideas that captivated the audience or the, the, the community the most was definitely the dog park <laughs> and um, the trails, and that's exactly what they're going to get. Um, the Tuscara Park Foundation then uh, applies to Clean Ohio for a grant, and through uh, you know a partnership that probably ranks up there with me and John, the City of New Philly and the <laughs> Tuscarora Park Foundation have been able to um, obtain a grant. For 1.5 million dollars for a project that is um, roughly a two million dollar project and the city of New Philadelphia's uh, you know, led through through Joel Day clearly has made this happen along with our foundation and um, it's just worked out very well
0: and for anybody that followed it they kind of saw the story unfold as the Tuscora Park Foundation, was born out of the need for this grant like you said that partnership but what i'm wondering is in the future i mean how does that get utilized and you wonder at the park is there are there more ways beyond i mean oh uh, yeah course, sure the foundation
1: the um ryan there's actually i take a little bit of exception with what you said in that the foundation came about for the furtherance of the park but it we never envisioned that it would be this critical okay. for the development of the park mm-hmm. um it was our goal to raise funds to have some money on hand for those necessities. I don't know that any of us actually envisioned that we would be seeking one, $1.5 million through Rip. this foundation. Oh, that's my best and understanding. Yeah, of that it, this, that, that came about um, secondary and it has been, uh, truly f- very fortunate that we had that formed at the yeah. time. Um, <laughs> the, uh, park itself is one that forever in the at least in the area that's being developed currently is to remain uh green it's it's a passive recreation area we will not be able to we are going to preserve the wooded area we are Mm -hmm. preserving really nature in that area it's not to say that other aspects of the Southside park couldn't be used in the future for athletic purposes but the but the portion that's being developed right now um, should look the same indefinitely because that's our um, our objective is to keep it green and keep it the way that the people want to see it used for trails, for dogs, for enjoying nature.
0: It, all of this sounds like continuous effort to make this place a better place to live, which I love. I mean, I've mm-hmm. as soon as I started getting to know this county, I realize what I did, why I didn't want to move out of here as opposed to my high school thoughts and dreams. And I I wonder what it takes now. What's, what's our obstacles as we move forward. We're talking about parks. We're talking about your time at the prosecutor's office, even the Quaker. I mean, what's our challenge now as a community?
1: Well, unfortunately, I mean, those are all very positive things. I see more of the challenges as a prosecutor and not so much as a theater owner or a yeah. park and without a doubt there is a significant problem in our community it always has been with illicit drug use but it has accelerated in the past um it, it has continued; to gone up over the last three to five years but we have seen a significant spike in the past 12 months and from my perspective um the 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 biggest issue facing our County in the court system is without a doubt is the use of methamphetamine. Um, it is the, the drug that we see the most abuse of.
0: Uh, I don't know this is just the few W's of a reporter's questions. I don't know if the prosecutor's office handles the why do you, do you at all? Do you, I'm not sure you understand.
1: I mean, why I mean.
0: do we see this? Do you ever look to that oh. for that answer?
1: Well, that's a good, good question, Ryan. Um, I would say as the, as a prosecutor's office, we may not, our objective or our goal is not to, to, to find out necessarily the why we don't conduct investigations. However, you cannot help but see, I think the why when you are handling over 300 cases as, as I have And and that is I came to the, uh, when I, when I first started doing this work, I assumed it was overindulgence. You know, people looking to have too good of a time, um, and that is not the case uh, at all. It may be the way that people first dabble mm-hmm. into substance abuse, but it is clearly um, utilized in many cases for self-medication, for um, mental health-related r- issues, um, There are some folks who may come into it for different reasons, but that is often goes hand in hand with abuse and addiction issues that there are underlying mental health problems, um, anxiety, yeah. depression. And it's not so much that someone is utilizing the controlled substance to party, you, know, you might say, is it's just to feel normal. Yeah. It's it's just to feel like they fit in, to they feel good. And it's not that—at least what my original thought was—overindulgence.
0: And so, in the line of the justice system, uh, a lot of the stories I'll cover when we talk about trying to end this, it it goes to the victims, as in the users, and we're looking for treatment and just—I uh, tr- uh, res- can't think of the word—but trying to get kids to never even start. Where is the right. prosecutor's office? come into that, uh, uh, the solution of fixing this problem.
1: Okay. Um, I think we do. And I think we we come into the equation in trying to fix the problem by recognizing that not all crimes call out for the same type of sentence in a case. There are times, without a doubt, that treatment is the right course to take. And then there are other times where clearly a more punitive outcome is what is necessary. Um, had you asked me early on in my career, if, if I, a drug possession case would have called out for prison, I might've said, sure. Yeah, it might. I being naive in sure. thinking that was the proper outcome. Yeah. It's clear that, um, low level felony drug cases, um, Require accountability, require that somebody is looking over that person's shoulder, somebody in the probation office or community corrections officer, but sometimes um, just going right to incarceration right out of the gate in, in a case is only going to draw that person back. Again, for further problems, it only digs them a deeper hole. Our county is fortunate in that there is an excellent community corrections program that assist those who honestly come to the table wanting help. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And when they don't, and it's just a facade, you know, trying to placate the, the, the probation officer to just get through, it often doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And for those people, they may end up in our county jail. Um, they may end up in a... Uh, Uh, a different type of facility called a community-based correctional facility. That's what those are for, and those are to be used in those types of situations. Um, Everybody is just a little bit different. There is no cookie-cutter sentence, I think, that can be imposed in, in every type of drug case.
0: So when you're working on a drug case, who are you consulting, or how are you making these decisions on well, this is what we're going to be asking the judge for in terms of a sentence. How how is that decision made?
1: I would look to, almost exclusively, the Community Corrections Office in Tuscarawas County because their opinion means a lot, but they are also compiling the opinions of others. Uh, There are some folks who have gone and taken part in treatment, even before they ever get to a sentencing, and that shows that that person is making An honest effort if they are taking the steps to go and try and get help even before the resolution of their case is certainly uh, advantageous to that person and is telling that they are serious about this. And then there are other times I turn to the community corrections office and to find out, and they say, Nope, haven't seen them. In fact, they've never reported to their pretrial supervision, Um, they were supposed to go see you know a certain agency. Did they go? No, nope, never went. Um, that's also telling that yeah. this person is not taking their recovery serious, and that potentially more punitive steps have to be taken.
0: Yeah, I think people would be very interested to hear that. That's something I didn't know, and it's almost like this merit-based system, even after the fact. I mean, these decisions are not being made just as a, here's the charge, here's our, here's our decision.
1: I No, uh, I absolutely would try not to do that because um, everyone's different, and there are different tools that are available to people who, who genuinely want help They can get it. There is a fantastic drug court program that is probably underutilized and not probably is underutilized in our county. Um, If more people took advantage of it, I think they would be better off for it. Uh, But it is rigorous and there is, uh, for some people, uh, a desire to take an easier route. Um, The opportunities clearly exist for for the person who is sincere about wanting help.
0: And so with that availability, how do we get over this challenge? How do, we, how do we reverse this problem, this biggest problem that you say we have?
1: Well, I think the, the one of the ways that it needs to continue on, and that is, and maybe I'm biased because I am a, at the prosecutor's office, but I do think that the law enforcement is really the first step and not... In punishing them, but in identifying really individuals who would benefit from treatment. There are many people who will thank the judge, um, probably not thanking the police so much, but (laughs) thanking the judge, which ultimately, you know, it makes it to the judge because of a law enforcement officer that they wouldn't have sought help on their own. That time in the county jail, you know, is what brought them to their senses or, or you know, clean them up to some extent to at least got them clear minded enough to recognize that I have a problem and I need to address it. That is often the the best way, in my opinion, at least that, that brings folks to the table to get help. But Ryan, I don't want to say that there is this absolute blueprint of this this and this which is maybe the most frustrating part of the problem Mm -hmm. to solving it because again there are times where people recognize this problem immediately and want to get help and then there are other times where it takes five, six, seven, you know, prosecutions until it sinks into that person and everyone's different. If there was such a a plan of, you know, do these three steps and it'll work. Um, you know, I think we would have heard it by now. Unfortunately, it's not that, that simple, Mm -hmm. but I think if you are persistent, as many law enforcement officers are in trying to address the problem and not just sweeping it under the rug. And if we stay persistent as a prosecutor's office that, you know, we are here to not inflict, you know, the most harm on you as possible as a user, then, um, you know, we can try and get you the help you need. Now there's an entirely different though problem as well, Ryan. and, and, And that is, I've been talking about the, the person who is the addict who is caught up in using the problem is also in the person who sells it yep. as well which is an entirely different issue in altogether for which um i don't for, i don't see um that as a question of treatment um i view that as a question of what is the appropriate punishment in those cases uh, I recognize the individuals will often say, look, it was a small amount. I was helping a friend. Uh, what's the big deal? You know, we've heard that many times, but I've yet to find somebody who would say that, oh, I didn't realize it was wrong. You know, I didn't know that, you know, that I couldn't sell drugs. It is obvious to the people who do it. They take steps to conceal what they're doing. It's clearly a crime and needs to be treated as such.
0: Yeah. Um, that's kind of a definition
1: that I think can get lost or at least fuzzy. It gets blurred sometimes because uh, there are many times where the seller can't honestly say, I'm also an abuser and I do this because I need to make money somehow. Um, you know, It's not like folks are often maintaining nine to five jobs when they are abusing um. Heroin, fentanyl, methamphetamine, this is not usually hidden well. And I get that. You know, you're saying you're also an abuser, but it comes back to what I would said before, and that is, um, I don't think it comes as a surprise to anyone that it is illegal to sell it, and they certainly take every effort to keep it as quiet as possible, conceal it as much as possible, and... Um, it's a crime that needs to be addressed and punished.
0: And is that something that you think we're successful at? Could do? Could could change in any way? Is because uh, uh, this problem persists? Uh, it, how do we how do we make sure that we're 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 going the, down the right path when we're addressing these these sellers?
1: Without a, I think without a doubt, our our county has. Um, Try to take a a leadership role in addressing the problem. Since I've been a prosecutor, there have been two different um, agencies uh, that have attempted to stop the sale of drugs in our community. Um, the primary organization in our county right now is the lead task force and that is an organization that is headed up through the Tuscarawas County Sheriff's Department. Um, Sheriff Campbell uh, has that program in place that through his office. It involves multiple counties. Um, one of uh, his detectives, uh, Phil Valdez, is the commander of that um, task force and they certainly put forth every effort to try and address what is a significant drug abuse problem, but um, it, is, it is widespread, and it can be a challenging even for those guys uh, who are excellent law enforcement officers. Yeah.
0: So in this process, and kind of coming to the point of this entire conversation, I mean, where in this solution does a judge's job lie?
1: As a judge, you are going to ultimately... Um, to, really, to some extent, beyond a little bit of the sidelines until that person's problem makes it into your courtroom. And there's a lot of times, there's a lot of hurdles that a case has to get to, even to get to that point has to be detected. It has to be provable things that the prosecutor are going to have to evaluate. So there's a number of cases that I know the judges don't even hear about because it doesn't make it there. So they're kind of at the tip of the iceberg really when it comes to the number of cases. Mm -hmm. But I think what a judge can do is really two things one send a clear message that trafficking is going to be punished and it's not just viewed as a aspect of of addiction it is a crime which which calls out for punishment and for those individuals who are sincerely coming to get help who are going to put forth an honest effort that you make that at least an option that there's availability to to succeed. And sometimes in order to succeed, there are failures along the way. Um there's a limit, you know, to what those uh failures can be, but there has to be some open-mindedness that uh that there are um at times some failures along along the way. But um if there is a person who honestly is trying to honestly wants help that you make that those tools available to them so for those that make to that point, I think that's what you need to do for them
0: so let's talk about the common police court now that we've kind of opened the door to that explain that to me that's I had to learn the court system around here still something that I'm trying to grasp <laughs> I imagine after all these years you've you've figured out to explain the common police court to me you know while you I'm, do it I'm going to make sure we're still rolling, but go ahead and keep on okay. talking
1: um, Ryan. That's a question that um, I've recognized in the past few months of this campaign leading up to the election of 2020 in the groups that I have met with. Um, And a lot of them have been even those that are affiliated with government. Mm -hmm. I recognize and I don't take it for granted that for some people they're really not familiar with what is the court of common pleas. If you aren't in a a case, if you don't work in the court system, you might just say a judge is a judge. You know, they're a judge. I don't know exactly where they work, but they're a judge. Yeah. (laughs) And that would be understandable because in our County, we have five different judges, magistrates, which confuse people as well. Are they the judge or what what do they do? And, um, so I like to explain to the you know the folks that I meet with that the common police court is breaking it down to its most simplest uh, description, the one with the dome <laughs> on, on the square. And uh, I like to point out to them that our county has three common police court judges. We have a juvenile probate division and two general trial divisions. And in that general trial division, uh, with those two judges, there's a uh, an equal split between them of criminal and civil cases. And while the maybe the number of civil cases exceeds the number of criminal cases, um, it is deceiving. If you spend any time at the Court of Common Pleas, you would have you would think that it was. Only criminal because so much of the civil side is um, a lot of it is domestic relations cases uh, which is handled by a magistrate Um, many other aspects of the court may be heard through mediation and our court system I think has um, really put the forefront on criminal cases for the judges to hear they're the only types of cases in which someone is going to lose their liberty um, potentially someone could be in prison for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. These are the most serious types of cases which call out for our elected judges to hear them. And those cases by far take up the lion's share of, of the courtroom time, Um, I may say differently, if I was a judge, there's a lot of behind the scenes, there could be on the civil side, but um, if you spent a week in the common police court, um, you would hear very little in the way of civil cases and almost exclusively criminal cases. And a lot of those cases are either drug cases or they are property crimes which have come about because someone has stolen someone's property, damaged someone's property, uh, or threatened someone that as a result of drugs mm-hmm. and alcohol. Um, so much is driven because of that one problem. That's
0: a lot to address and to, to see. It's got to be frustrating to see that one problem, but then, like you say, there's not that one solution.
1: And that's true. And I guess, for me, I... You know, I I don't it doesn't I don't mean to sound uh, as if it's being defeated in any way, but unlike other problems in life where, um, you know, if the uh, heating and cooling system is not working at the Quaker, um, I am going to call somebody who's going to fix that problem, and I'm confident it's going to be done or replaced, and it will it will work. Yeah. Um, the if you if you in your mind thought that you were going to resolve addiction problems with a fix, you are one naive individual. These are issues that are not new. They have existed for centuries where people have utilized substances to alter their mind to escape in some way. And that is very naive if you thought that you had the fix for that problem. So if you just try and tackle it in stages or in at least in each case that comes before you, it does not seem so daunting to think that we need to come up with a solution to this problem. Yeah. Um, you, you'll be trying to wrap your head around that problem for a very long time. <laughs> and I'm not saying to ignore it, but recognize that it is uh, a problem that's going to require Continuous maintenance. It's sort of like the Quaker in that uh, it's a eighty year old business building. It requires constant maintenance. There's never going to be a day where I'm going to say it's all perfect. It's not going to happen, and That's you just scary. have to accept that and address each problem as it comes up.
0: Yeah. And so, what qualifies somebody to be able to do this? To be at, the, I guess, somewhat of a control of someone's liberty. I mean, how do you how do you take that on? How do you say
1: that? I'm ready for this job. I'm ready to consider these things. Well, I think it's one of the reasons that I think in being a prosecutor um makes me so uniquely qualified to be the judge because there are, this happens a lot when you have a jury trial. There are many people who will say, um sure, I have no problem with this. I can do this. I've, you know, I look forward to doing this. Um and then you realize it's not like it is on television or a movie. And there's a, a human being sitting over there whose life is going to be altered um, maybe forever as a result of your decision. Yep. And what seems to start out so easy for maybe a juror uh, looking to hold someone accountable uh, or to, you know, to see the justice is served becomes a challenge. And. Those are thoughts that have run through my mind, probably in every criminal case I've ever had. I don't ever just think that that's just some inanimate object sitting over there and whatever happens, happens to this person. Um, I think even in the worst of cases, I can't help but think that, um, you know, that's still someone who potentially is going to be spending the rest of their life, you know, in in prison, or even if it is one year in prison, when you break it down and think what you would be doing a year from now, um, it helps put it into perspective that your decisions are um, sometimes monumental to someone. And I don't think I've gotten hardened over it from being a prosecutor. I think that I have become more respectful of knowing that what we do has a um, profound impact on someone else's life in some cases for the, for the, for the negative and sometimes for the positive, you know, if they're getting help. Um, but I, I never take that for granted in any case.
0: And of course, everything that we do, every experience we have leads to who we are in certain roles, being a prosecutor, how does that influence becoming a judge? If that would happen?
1: I think being a prosecutor, while not the only training ground to be a judge, um, I personally feel is the best training ground to be a judge because there is a side to the prosec- to being a prosecutor that isn't the subject of television or isn't something that we may even think of. We just think of the, the man or the woman that we see on a, a dateline or something trying to hold someone accountable in a horrible case. Okay, that's the exception. That's the end product that you see. And when you get to that point, sure, you know, you, you can become very self-righteous and want to uh, prove someone has committed a crime. But there is so much that leads up to that moment when you are even into a courtroom. Nobody knows about the number of cases where we simply say, there's not enough evidence here. We aren't going forward. That um, That happens more times than people would probably realize that it's not that the police officer did anything wrong. It's there's simply not enough here. You know, we, we Mm -hmm. cannot make that decision. um, I'm sorry. We cannot make that decision to proceed on. Yeah. And that can also have significant ramifications that many people never even know about because maybe there is a, a, um, you know, an alleged victim that is going to hear that we don't have enough. To, mm-hmm. to go forward. But those are some of the most difficult parts of being a prosecutor to tell someone that. And unfortunately, it happens. We have a burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt that we do not take lightly. And we will not just bring a case to appease someone and then figure it out later. Mm-hmm. You know, it is something that has to be figured out and certain of reasonably certain of it's not that every case ends maybe the 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 way we'd like but more of them do than not Mm -hmm. and that's because we have to put the work in on the back end to make sure that there is enough and it also requires then if there is enough that you are um well versed in the law that you're well versed in the rules of evidence in the rules of criminal procedure, at times civil procedure as well. These are all of the things that a judge needs to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And not a uh, half hour from now, I'll get back to you. It is now the, in the middle of a case, you have to be able to respond. You have to be able to make a decision um, and not just you know wing it, you know, mm-hmm. figure it out uh, as you go. It has to be made now. And it has to be somebody who is comfortable in handling. Um, I, I'm, I know I'm dwelling a lot on the, on the criminal, but those are the cases where people are potentially losing their liberty. And it needs to be somebody who is comfortable in the courtroom, who's regularly in the courtroom, and who has handled uh, courtroom work. And
0: see, that's, maybe I'm just kind of blown away by professionals but there's no handbook to how you have to run a courtroom there's no you're right I mean I don't understand the ones that I've been in are run very similarly
1: well there there is a to to extent there's a handbook as far as the rules of evidence go Uh is as but that is when there are often disputes that come up and there is a, a blueprint of as far as how the court goes, as far as an opening statement, and who presents the evidence first. But um, a lot of uh, there are different nuances that can come up in between. There are often issues that are um, not a part of that playbook that, that arise. You have to be able to... Um, be able to, to to get that rule of evidence, to get that rule of law um, reasonably quick and also yeah. to be right when it comes up because um, unlike we see it all the time in sports where if the umpire gets it wrong, uh, they go back to a camera and, and check out the, you know, back in New York and see what happened. Yeah. That's not how it works in a courtroom. It, it, it needs to be right the first time mm-hmm. and... Um, You know, there's no instant replay.
0: So, with that kind of pressure, I'm just gonna come out. Why? Why would you want to do this? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have to have somebody that that, that does that, and you though, yeah, in
1: your mind, In, in my mind, I believe I'm the most qualified to do it, and that's the reason I think that I, um, decided to run for the position. Um, I know I'm, uh, in the courtroom, uh. A great bit um I yeah. know that um there i don't know of there are very few types of criminal cases that I have not handled mm-hmm. uh, from uh aggravated murder to uh speeding cases and, yeah. and really everything in between um and Ryan, I would say that when you have covered that spectrum of cases, it gives you the confidence to know that I can handle situations that come up. And just when I think you I would have thought that even Judge O'Farrell, who has got to be on a, close to his 40th year, mm-hmm. I know a couple years back, um we had a man who just could not refuse to be cooperative in the courtroom. And I remember I'd never had that come up before. I mean, I mean, there's people who have acted out or have spoken out, but yeah. this was way beyond mm-hmm. that. And yeah. um, I thought, you know, that one's going to go in the memory bank as to uh, how I would do this because I thought Judge O'Farrell handled it perfectly. It, it he must have because it didn't uh, get overturned on appeal. Yeah. And um, there's always something new that comes up, but I think that that experience, that confidence you get from Handling, you know, an aggravated murder case to a speeding case, um, you know, it helps you make the right decision.
0: And like you say, that that experience, and I think wisdom comes from experience, including then. He's, does being a business owner come into the
1: courtroom at all? I think it does, Ryan. I do. Um, I'll tell you, after. Um, I was you know thinking about some of the aspects of what I think is important about a judge it certainly has come up uh, sure in, in in running, and one of those aspects that I um, you know have come back to that I think is important is there is a difference. I certainly have tremendous amount of respect for all of our judges in the county, and I've learned something from every one of them. I think there is something, and I could be wrong, I'm not sure about all of their backgrounds, but um, I think there is a quality that comes from being a business owner. Uh, and you might say, what does a movie theater have to do with being a judge? Well, specifically a movie theater, nothing. Mm-hmm. But being a small business owner, I think it means a lot because many times – we are dealing with individuals who have had property damaged, property stolen, um, you know, lost in some way, uh, or in civil cases, it's a dispute among businesses. And as being one of those people, I know that the Quaker is more than just a piece of real estate to me uh for the last 23 years it has involved my life in my family's life in one form of another i know there are numerous other people in those same positions in this community who don't view property as just property but as you know an extension of their life and um I think that that, to some extent, can be missing, um, unless you bring that experience of having been in the private sector, in knowing what it's like, the struggles of uh, meeting a payroll, of working weekends, holidays, you know, all of the things that go with keeping a business going, um, I think is a quality that is needed in a judge. So,
0: we're waiting for November 3rd. What happens for you between now and then?
1: I'll continue to, um, campaign. I will, uh, be advertising more. Um, you'll see, um, me probably out on the street, uh, neighborhoods. Uh, I'm not going to be knocking. Uh, I will be, uh, distributing my literature, uh, to a door handle, you know, near you. (laughs) Um, but, um, there's a real, I think, debate as to is it appropriate or not. I, I've, I've, for one, don't want to impose upon someone, make someone feel uncomfortable um, in, uh, in engaging in conversation on their porch and... If they're out, I'd be happy to talk with them, but um, that's just a judgment call that I've made.
0: And you know, it is tough. I mean it's gotta be tough to be running a campaign when, like you said, you can't do that personable thing that is important to running a campaign. So people are, Yeah, people are gonna be interested in especially the judges' race. It's it's an interesting one. How do where would you send someone to find out more? I mean, when you're trying to make a real decision and find out about a candidate, that's That's a difficult thing to do for at any level anymore for your average citizen. Finding this information, send me mm -hmm. to where I need to go.
1: I would suggest they check out um, my website. It's um, uh, com. There is also a Facebook page that I have as well. And from either one of those sources, if they wanted to talk with me uh, directly, they can reach out to me and I'd be happy to talk with anyone uh, about my candidacy. Mike?
0: If I missed anything, stop me. But otherwise, I appreciate your time tonight, sir. I think we've covered it all. Hey, good luck running that campaign. And maybe I'll be seeing you up there on the bench then.
1: Maybe. Thanks Thank life. you.